0: As if the McCrispy couldn't get any better, Bacon and Ranch just entered the chat. The Bacon Ranch McCrispy, available at participating McDonald's for a limited time. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey
1: guys, and welcome into this edition of the Heel Tough Walk podcast. Anthony Pagnotta along with you as I am every week. And back once again, guys, Josh Marlowe, he'll be our co-host tonight. Um, We'll talk a little bit about the Virginia game and what went down in that. Elijah Burris' commitment to Carolina, we'll talk a little bit about that and get into what it means for the 2020 class and potentially the impacts that it may have on the 2019 class as well. Antonio Williams versus Michael Carter. Which running back do you think should see the bulk of the carries? And then we'll preview the Georgia Tech game. Also on this edition of the podcast, you will hear my interview with the voice of the North Carolina Tar Heels, Jones Angel, who I will talk to later uh, in the show. So uh, we'll jump into it. Uh, Welcome in, Josh. First of all, how's it going, man? Uh, I mean, another another week uh, with a loss, but uh, outside of that, uh, how's it going?
2: Uh, not too bad buddy uh, got done watching the hornets get a good win to start a four-game home stand um going off a big you know college football weekend nfl weekend getting geared up for another big college football and nfl weekend so i'm um,
1: pretty good excited ready love this time of year sports-wise so oh yeah for sure and you didn't have to see the dallas cowboys lose on sunday so i guess that uh that makes you happy. Where i not even lose, I, I think you're frustrated every week with the Scott Lenahan offense. So um, it seems like Saturday and Sundays for uh, both of us has been pretty, pretty stressful so far this year. Uh, my teams are a beautiful combined uh, 2 and 13. So if you have, if, if any of you people that are listening to this uh, think, you know, maybe I'm having a bad year, you're not. Trust me, it could be worse. You could be this guy. So. Um. Yeah. Uh. So I guess you know we'll. Uh. Well, one of the things that I wanted to bring up, the initial college football playoff rankings came out. Washington State and Kentucky both are ranked at eighth and ninth, uh, in the polls. And this is my question, really quickly. We're not gonna really harp on this that much, but you know, you see those teams up at that point in the poll, and let's be real, Washington State and Kentucky, they've kind of been in that same area. That I think most people feel the Tar Heels program has been at for a while. When you look at that, seeing them that high in the first rankings and potentially, you know, able that they might be able to climb higher depending on what they do the rest of the season, is that you know something that kind of sticks in your mind as a Tar Heel fan that you know maybe one day we could get to that 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 area. I guess you could say once again because we were kind of in a similar area back in 2015
2: yeah I mean I think you look at both of those schools that are not known for football uh, Kentucky of course being in the SEC has backed up impressive lands over Florida who they haven't beaten in almost three decades uh, Washington State sadly, beat an Oregon team who you know we all thought was maybe become a playoff factor. So, yeah, as a Tar Heel fan, it's, it gives you hope that even though you're not, we're not a football school, that you get the right kind of guy with the right kind of players, a miracle things can happen and we can be there. And that happened in 2015 when we entered the agency championship game with we beat Clemson. Could we climb from 10 to 4? So we're only three years removed away from that. So, yeah, I think there's always the hope that you can get the program turned around and get back to them. Having a spot where we're in a playoff ranking show and people being talked about us as a contender to make the four.
1: So, yeah. Yeah, no, I I totally agree with that. I think that uh, is exactly what people should be feeling at this point is that, hey, you know, while we're we're at this spot right now, look, both of the programs that are at eighth and ninth in the country right now have been in similar spots really within the last, you know, since the turn of the century. Uh, I mean, both teams have been at at a a point where they've been about this bad. So you know, if if it's like you said, if you get the right guy in there, maybe you get a couple of different pieces going. You know, go working together in the same season, it it can really make an impact and potentially get us back to that point uh, that I think you know everybody wants to be back at that 2015 season. I know for me personally, and I feel like a lot of Tar Heel fans was really one of the most exciting seasons of football, because every week you thought, okay, we're still climbing, we're still climbing, and when we entered that championship game against Clemson, I mean, if we would have won that game, there was a chance that we could be one of the teams that was being highly talked about in that, you know, before that last playoff ranking was released, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, we weren't able to beat Clemson, and, you know, that's not a slight on that team at all. Um, you know, because look, Clemson was a great football team. Uh, That team was, I mean, one of the best, they, they had a chance to win that national championship game and and just didn't. But, um, you know, when I look at it, I think at this point, yeah, I, I think that's, that's gotta be our goal going forward. And that's gotta be the goal for the Tar Heels. If they do end up firing Larry Fedora, Uh, you know, can they get a coach in there that can bring them to that point? Can they get someone like a Mike Leach or, Potentially a, a Mark Stoops. I would prefer more of the Mike Leach type, but uh, you know a Mark Stoops that can get you to that point. So um, we won't spend any more time on that because you know that really doesn't concern us at all. And frankly, who really gives a damn about those teams because it's not us. So let's move uh, and focus on the Tar Heels and the game against Virginia. You know, I, I was talking to you right before we uh, you know started recording and. I kinda, you know, I don't know how much we can really take away from this game this weekend. You know, we did lose the game, but it kind of feels like one of those games where, you know, we really we didn't play that good, but we didn't really play that bad either. I think we just got beat by a better football team. Is that kind of the feeling that you got from watching that game on Saturday as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like we were, I guess. We were never out of the game, but we were never in the game, I guess is how I'd say. Like, I never thought, okay, yeah, well, we got a pretty good chance to win. But I was never sitting there thinking, well, God, they're about to kick our ass. Like, I guess we were just kind of, like, I think we showed up, and that was the, you know, we just we we played. We just did execute at the level we wanted to, but we didn't allow them to execute at the level they wanted to. So it was just kind of, I guess, I'll put it, it was a normal 12-20 ACC game for both teams, just kind of
1: a, 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 a blur of three hours. Right, yeah. I, I think the, the only spot where it may have felt like we had a chance to potentially take the lead was coming out of halftime. We had our first drive where if we drive down and score – we would have taken the lead because at the time we were only down um, 20 to 14, I believe, uh, if I'm getting that score. Yeah, that's right. That was the score at halftime. So, um, but, but after that, I just kind of sat there and said, you know, I don't think this is, this is really our day. You saw, you know, the turnover by Nathan Elliott where, I mean, frankly, it it didn't really matter. That was a third down play anyway. So if he doesn't fumble there, we end up punting and, who knows if I don't think we end up stopping them anyways, because at that point I felt like their offense had started to click a little bit, but you know, yeah, I, I, feel like, you know, it was one of those games where you can't really learn a lot from that game. I just think at this point, Virginia is the better football team. That that's a program that seems to be somewhat on the rise. They're responding well to what Bronco Mendenhall has been preaching there. And for, the Tar Heels, I mean, frankly, we're just, we're a bad football team right now. I don't think anybody can deny that. And, you know, if you're a bad football team, you're not going to win games like that. I, I, I mean, I, I, you, you've got to play great in order to win as a bad football team. And at this point, you know, I felt like we played pretty close to great against Virginia Tech and Syracuse. But, you know, I I felt like on Saturday, we kind of returned to an average team, a team that, you know, just was trying to skate by, and I feel at this point, as much as they're saying it, that look, they're they're not quitting on this season. It feels like they're starting to get to that point where they're realizing, look, especially now, we're one and six. We're not going to a bowl game more than likely. I, they would have to win out and then schedule that twelfth game in order to get to six and six. They could put a five and six team in there, but at the same time, I mean, really at that point, it's it's not going to be worth anything, honestly. Going to a bowl game at five and six, we're going to be playing. uh, Who knows? I mean, at that point, you're playing in the lowest ACC bowl there is, or maybe not even an ACC bowl, just a spot that's left over. So you're going to be traveling to who knows where to play a bowl game that, frankly, doesn't mean a whole lot, and. Honestly, you you could be with an interim coach that more than likely won't be your coach next year, depending on what they decide to do with Larry Fedora. So, I I, I don't know. I I just feel like there there wasn't a a whole lot to take away from, it. but there were some storylines. And so the first one that I'll ask you about, and you brought this up actually to me, and you know we could talk about this maybe a little bit later if you want to. Um, when we do the debate of Antonio Williams and Michael Carter, who should see you know the most time on the field? You know Bo Corrales. You know he, that's another guy that I think a lot of people are starting to say. You know this guy has been playing really well. He feels like he he's starting to hit a little bit of a groove. Maybe this is a guy that should see some more playing time. What did he show you really? I, I would say in the last two weeks that has you feeling that way that. You know, hey, look, this this guy needs to see the field a little bit more. Yep. Oh, still there? Yeah. The, the the phone just cut out for some reason. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, what what are you seeing from Bo that you know thinks it makes makes you think he needs more playing time? Well, I mean, I think you go back to last year. He got on the
2: field and he was sort of like instant offense, and then. So we were asking ourselves, like, well, why was he going to do it all along? And then we come out this year, hadn't really seen him much, and then last week against Syracuse and this past week against Virginia, he's had some catches for some big plays. I mean, four for 62, you can't argue for that. I mean, I think he's developing in that guy. You know, we've talked about it extensively really since – the 2015 season, when we lost Matt Coss, we haven't had guys on the outside to, you know, help the offense down the field vertically. Uh, Rob McWilliams did a good, did a decent job last year, but because he was the only guy, defenses this year were double-teaming him and scheming to take him away. Well, now if Bo steps up and can start doing this work can you know, can Consistently, it's going to make Ratliff-Williams' life easier, and then our slot guys' life easier. So at least what you're finding is a guy who's got a spring athleticism, the into gets a receiver that we can count on um, to make big plays every Saturday.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I see what you're saying to a point. I still feel like Bo is kind of that go-up-and-get-it type of receiver, more in the direction of what... Uh, bug Howard was as opposed to Mac Hollins. Um, but the thing about Mac Collins is I, I just feel like he was, he was so much different than most of the guys that you're going to see playing the position today. There, there are very few guys that really just focus on, you know, being that, that deep receiver, that guy that can take the top off of defenses because you're right. I mean, we've been lacking that since his injury back in the 2016 season and anybody that's been watching this team for, you know, since that time, even if you joined the bandwagon back in 2015 and have stuck around since, you've, you know, watched and realized that hey, with him gone, there hasn't been that same spark for the offense because the big play nature really isn't there. And you can say, you know, and I'll give it to Daz Newsome. I think what he's been doing is fantastic. But what Daz Newsom does, I think, is a little bit different. His offense, you know, his big play ability is based on making guys miss in the open field. And, you know, we saw a little bit of that with Bo Corrales as well, which I think is what makes him really intriguing, is that he can be both that guy that can, you know, catch a screenplay and make a move to, you know, pick up a couple of extra yards. But he can also be that guy that if you throw it up there, he can go up and get the football. I still think they're looking for that guy that has the speed to beat corners and safeties over the top and allow someone to throw the ball deep. Um, Now, who knows? That may be Bo, and maybe it's just the fact that really Nathan Elliott just isn't a, a deep thrower of the football. I mean, he's not a guy that throws the football well at all if he's throwing it more than, I would say, 15 yards downfield. I mean, he's had some times where he's made a couple of throws here and there, but a lot of the stuff that we've seen him throw downfield have been overthrows or severely underthrown. And even, it's very rare that it's underthrown. Most of the times I've ever seen him try to throw deep routes, he's overthrowing receivers by 10 to 15 yards. I mean, these passes, frankly, aren't even close. Um, So maybe that's the problem, but... I don't know. I'd like to see someone sort of step up and, and maybe become that, that type of receiver that could average, you know, over 15 yards a catch. I think that's kind of what you're looking for. I mean, to average what Matt Collins did in 2015 is ridiculous. Nobody, I don't think you're going to have another receiver in Carolina history that's going to average 24 and a half yards per reception. Um, that's just, that's outlandish, that's ridiculous numbers, and there was a reason why Mac Hollins was recognized nationally for that, and there's a reason why he's playing for the Philadelphia Eagles at this point, because he was just a special guy, Um, but at the same time, you know, there's got to be somebody out there that can at least be able to bring that sort of spark back to the offense that I think Larry Fedora's offense really needs in, in order to be all that successful, but Yeah, no, I think we can both agree, at least on this, is that Bo is at least providing a little more than we saw at that position early in the year, where we saw a combination of guys like Diami Brown, who was out there, who got the start, and you know, he's a true freshman, so it is going to take some time for him to mature. It seems like he's having a little bit of trouble with the college game, um, you know, being able to establish, uh, establish some separation. I think in high school, he was so fast and so athletic, ran such crisp routes at the high school level that that was good enough to be able to separate from corners. When you get to the ACC, the ACC, I think, maybe outside of the I would say probably the Big Ten has the best corners in the country. The SEC has some talent, but the ACC, I think, has some of the best corners in the country. These guys are lockdown defenders, and you can see that he struggled with that a little bit. And then we saw a little bit of Toe Groves. I, I don't really know if he's that outside guy. Honestly, he's gonna really have no choice with Daz Newsom be, being there because Daz is gonna be the slot guy. He's gonna have to become that guy on the outside if he's gonna be able to see snaps. Um, but also, you gotta wonder what the injury, you know, if, if that's hurting him as well. But uh, you know, I, I think Corrales, at least out of those three, um, has to be the best of that group. I mean, is is that how you're feeling as well? Uh, yeah, that's
2: kind of where where I've leaned. Um, you put Ralph Williams on one side, Rouse on the other, and then you figure out your slot guys as, as, as they progress. And really as they get older, because like you said, Tommy Brown's young, Newsom's only a sophomore. So there's still a lot of youth at the wide receiver position to figure out the rest moving forward.
1: Yeah. And I mean, they've got a guy right now that's been getting them the football pretty, pretty efficiently. Um, I mean, to this point, I don't think, in the last three games at least, you can't criticize Nathan Elliott too much. Uh, I, you know, he did have the turnover uh, this past weekend against Virginia, but really I think, you know, he continues to keep this team in games. It, there's a lot of people that still are concerned about the arm strength, concerned about the fact that his footwork is is still very sloppy. But at this point, I mean, I still don't think that there's a better quarterback on the roster, someone that could put us in a better position at this point on the roster, I should say. I think there's guys with upside uh, with Jace Reuter and and really that's I mean it, that that's really it at this point because Manny Miles will graduate and as much as you want to say it, let's let's be honest here. Manny Miles is a walk-on. I, I don't think that Manny Miles is gonna be a better quarterback than Nathan Elliott. Nathan Elliott is on scholarship. For a reason, um, you know, I, I think, he, you know, I think he's put us in a good position to win games. A lot of fans disagree with me. They say that they think people could put us in a better position, um, not being Cade Fortin. Of course, I would say Fortin would put us in a better position, but he is on the shelf right now. Of course, with that leg injury that we still don't have a timetable on. I, I mean, are you in agreeance that at this point, look, even though Nathan Elliott might not be the future and is far from an NFL guy uh, at this moment, that he is the best chance for this team to win games and has been playing well enough for us to potentially, um, you know, win these football games these last couple of weeks? Yeah, I mean, you were a play away
2: against Virginia Tech. You were a play away against Syracuse. Neither were the plays that we didn't make were Elliott's fault. They were more defensive issues. Um You know, I'm not willing to burn a redshirt on Reuter if I don't have to. And like you said, Manny Miles, he's been on the roster for seven years, it feels like, and has never really earned the right to take a snap. So, um, and you you look at Elliott going at the way he ended last year, was the team played much better with him as the the quarterback. So, yeah, it's not all – is he a limited quarterback? Yes, but is he still good enough for us to win games? Absolutely. Um, he's not the main issue with the football team, um,
1: as, as as the fans like to think he is. Yeah, and that's the main point that I'm trying to get across. I mean, at this point, there are a lot of different issues with this football team. You've got the struggles with consistency and running back. You've got a linebacking core that is as hit as miss as it possibly gets in all of college football. Um, really, the run defense in general. You've got a coaching staff that remains to be an issue with the play calling, with clock management, with discipline issues um, when it comes to, you know, penalties in game. And yeah, no, I, I just, I, there are a lot of people that are heavy critics of him. And at this point, you know, the guy that everybody seems to want to turn to is Ruder. And like you said, and I will at least give them this. Because they are not going to play that final game at the end of the season, more than likely they're not going to add a twelfth game. That's that's pretty much what I'm saying. Um, they are going to play the state game. Don't worry about that. Uh, un, uh, you know we, we're we're hoping maybe they could cancel that game at this point because that game is probably not going to be pretty. And I I don't feel like losing to those jackasses again, but. Uh, You know, look, Reuter now would be able to play the rest of the year and not have to worry. He would still be able to be redshirted because of the new redshirt rule where, you know, you can play up to four games and not have to worry they could still redshirt you. And that is effective throughout the whole year. It's not only the first four games of the year, which is how I originally thought the rule was written. That's apparently not it. You can play in four games. It's basically like the eight-quarter thing at the high school level. So, um, you know, I I see where people would say, okay, and, and the main thing that they would say is, well, what do you have to lose? There are a couple of examples that I think you can look at, but the biggest example for me is take a look at Nathan Peterman right now in the NFL. If you remember back to his first game a year ago, When they decided to bench Tyrod Taylor and put him in a quarterback, he came in through five interceptions in a first half. Since that point, what has Nathan Peterman been? I mean, you got to remember, they decided to go to a guy that was literally sitting on his couch, indoor golfing in Derek Anderson rather than stick with a guy in Nathan Peterman that had been on the roster for a year and that you thought was better than Tyrod Taylor at one point last season because he simply has lost the touch. And the thing is, he lost the confidence. That's the main thing that I'm worried about with Jace Reuter. You're going to put him in a game. Let's say you put him in a game this weekend against Georgia Tech. And let's say he comes out in the first half throws four interceptions and then you bench him and go back to Nathan Elliott because that's what everybody's going to want anyways. And don't deny that you wouldn't want that because that's how it always works. That's how the mindset is, is that, look, the grass is always greener on the other side, and then when you realize that it isn't, well, we need to go back immediately. Um, If that ends up happening, there's a real chance you could ruin Jace Reuter for his entire career. And you can say, well, we've got Cade Fortin all we want. There's no guarantee that the Cade Ford that we saw against Virginia Tech is the guy that we're going to see going forward. I, I, I mean, there's a really good chance. Trust me, there's a ton of things that I like about him. I think he has a great arm. I think his footwork is already better than Nathan Elliott's. And, you know, he seems, from what Larry has said, he can make all the throws, and that seems about right. But, um, you know, with, with Jace Reuter, you don't want to risk that because, yeah, there is a potential that, hey, There could be something here. Remember, this guy was a borderline four-star, but at the same time, if you go back and look at his high school stats, this was a guy that barely completed over 50% of his passes in high school. This is not a polished passer by any means. I I, want to make sure people know that. There is a lot that has to be worked on with Jace Reuter. He is not as much of a college-ready quarterback as I think a lot of people think. I don't even think he's really as college-ready as Cade Fortin, and that's the reason why Cade Fortin beat him out in fall camp. Um, The the thing is, with Jace Reuter, it's going to be very similar, I feel like. If you put him in right now, it's going to be pretty similar to what you're getting from Nathan Elliott. A guy that is still working on his overall passing game, might still be working on developing a downfield throwing game, and is really just gonna be a placeholder at the moment. So I'm just telling you, at this point, Elliot's giving you a chance to win. Stick with him. Don't risk destroying someone's career on a one and six season. We are one and six. What the hell are we gonna worry about? Do you think that putting in Jace Ruder? That's my question to these people. Do you think that putting in Jace Ruder? Is gonna literally set us on a five-game winning streak, and we're gonna come back and make a bowl game. I don't see it happening. So why, why waste, why risk him potentially getting injured, maybe costing the kid his career, um, because we just want to throw him in there and see if maybe he has something. I, I, I just, I don't know. Um, one of the other we'll, – we'll, we'll turn back uh, to more of what's going on, uh, what we saw in the Virginia game. Just a couple of other things here. Um, pass rush uh, continues to play uh, well um, up front. Some guys that uh, were out injured, uh, out with some suspension. Uh, Timone Fox did not play, as well as Alan Cater out with an injury. Uh, Tyrone Hopper, of course, still returning from uh, his own injuries that he suffered. Um I I think it was during the suspension, not sure on the timetable of that. Of course, Jalen Dalton not at 100%, but this defensive line is not missing a beat. How about Chris Collins coming in? I thought he looked fantastic, was pretty much out there for a a, a bulk of the snaps. I think he was out there for at least 70% of them if I read the the, the snap count right and, and, and added the math up right. So he was out there a ton and ends up with a sack. Only had two total tackles on the day, but both of them were for losses and seemed to be constantly in the picture when it came to putting pressure on the quarterback. So the the pass rush continues to be a huge factor and I think continues to have people feeling pretty good. And then Trey Morrison just playing out of this world. Um, you know, this, this kid once again named a pro football focus um, All-ACC Player of the Week. Uh, right now, I, I mean pretty much he's about as locked down as it gets. They threw at him, uh, if I remember correctly, five times, and he didn't allow a single catch. So this guy right now is playing about as good as you could hope from any freshman and is playing as well as any corner that I can remember um, in in the last few years. And we've had some good guys come through Chapel Hill. uh, And and this kid, I think right now, has the potential to – maybe end up being down the line the best of the group. So, um, you know, that was one of the other takeaways. Offensive line, I think, remains inconsistent. Uh, Only 66 rushing yards in large part because the offensive line really didn't have a good day up front. I thought J.J. McCargo uh, had some struggles. Uh, Nick Polino, I think, still, you know, hit and miss uh, as he must. Still a starter. And at this point, you know, you can't really argue with it because of how experienced he is. But, the offensive line still has their moments where they, you know, look like they can dominate. They'll have those stretches like they did against Virginia Tech and Syracuse, where you say, "Yeah, this this offensive line could be one of the better units in the ACC in years to come." And then there's games like this past week against Virginia, where you say, "This might be a middle of the road group at best." It, it, it's just you want to see a little more consistency. And then the biggest issue, and I want to hear, you know, what you think about this, is the third down offense, which continues to be a problem. They entered last week 124th in the country in third down offense with uh, a conversion rate of 31.6%. They responded by going four for 14 on third down. So, I mean, looking at home, I, I guess you know we're considered the armchair quarterbacks, but to me. I think, as I wrote in my recap article, there's a balance between execution and play calling. Well, I mean, when it comes to the third downs, you know, what do you think is the big problem for us right now? And why are we unable to keep drives going on third-down situations?
2: I think you look at it first. Um, I mean, I don't have the stat. The, the, the down and distance has been an issue all year long. Um I don't know how many offenses are going to convert at a high rate when they're third and seven or longer. Um, so for, that's, where it, that's where it starts. We're not winning on first and second down. And if so on third down, it's making it tougher to get that first down to get to the tempo. Um, the running game isn't consistent enough where on third and three, we're comfortable with running the football. And and I think the thing is, like, on passing downs, when it's third and long, we're we're throwing screens behind the line of scrimmage, and we still got eight yards to go. So there's a lot of things that I think are playing into the fact that our third down offense isn't where it has been under Larry Fedora, where it could be, and really where it should be. Um, The offensive line hasn't protected well enough all year. So there's just so many issues to where you can't blame one thing as to why we're not doing it on
1: third down. Here's my favorite frustrating stat out of uh, this season so far. On fourth down this year, we are converting at 100%. Four for four on fourth down. But on third down, absolutely abysmal. Um, and yes, no, that, that that is not good, as Joey Tribbiani would tell you on the episode of Friends. Abysmal is, is very bad. Um, but... You know, when I look at it, I I I think your your latter point is the one that I focus on the most. I understand, especially with the down and distance, that's been a problem, in large part due to a lot of discipline issues, uh, where you know you get a holding or a false start. We've seen that multiple times this year, where we've had drives going, commit a penalty back us up on a you know first down and 15 first down and 20 and then we're just unable to recover from there and that ends up what could be that ends what could be a promising drive uh, but it you know there's a lot of screenplays like you said the other thing even when they've had these plays where they're looking down the field okay. most of the time the first and second reads for the quarterback are not Routes that are gonna pick up first downs. Most of them are still short of the sticks. Most of the plays that we've seen run are slant routes, five yard in routes, even five yard out routes. I mean, these are things that are not picking up first downs on third and seven. Um, you've got to be able to know where the sticks are, and part of that's on the wide receivers as well. That's execution where you've got to know, look, you know, I've got to run this this route. Yeah, if I'm running a 5-and-in, a, a I've got to extend it to a 7-and-in. I need to be on that line to gain when I catch the football because you can't rely on guys always making people miss in the open field. As much as we think, okay, Daz Newsom is, you know, a, a, as good as it gets when it comes to making guys miss in the open field. Look, Daz Newsome is great at making guys miss, but – you're not always going to make everybody miss. That's not how it works. You can't rely on that to pick up first downs. These routes have to be run down the field to a point where when you throw the football, it results in a first down. Your players shouldn't always be having to make plays after the catch in order to pick up these first downs. And I think that's been, you know, one of the other things is creating separation That's what has led to a lot of these dump-down passes to the running backs, which most people see as screens. It's really not. It's the fact that nobody is creating separation downfield. So, really, you have no choice but to dump it off to the running back and pray someone can miss in the open field. And at this point, I mean, look, when you're backed up on a third down and eight, third down and nine, you can make a guy miss, maybe even two guys miss. But at that point, even though you've made those guys miss, you're still getting tackled for, what, a three-yard gain? That's not going to do anything. And then fourth and five, if it's on your side of the field, clearly you're not going for it. So I think it's been you know, both. I think it's a lack of play calling as well as a lack of execution, and that's something that hopefully they can get ironed out down the stretch here because in order to win games, you've got to convert on third down. The last two years, That simply hasn't been happening, and I I just I don't understand where that play calling went from the 2016 2015 season as well, where you know on third downs the play calling was very smart. The play calling was let's look downfield, let's look to a guy like Ryan Switzer, and I understand he's not there anymore, but we've seen it these past couple of weeks. To me, why not allow Daz Newsome to get down the field? 10 to 12 yards in the middle of the field, get open and and catch the football for a first down? Why do you have to try to get him to catch it, you know, three yards ahead of the line of scrimmage and then make something happen? You, you got to trust your receivers a little bit. And it seems at this point that that's not happening in Chapel Hill. So to me, that's a little bit frustrating. So um, anything else you got from the Virginia game? Because we've been talking about this for 35 minutes now, so I think it might be time to move on to a different uh, different topic here. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah
2: nothing,
1: to, nothing to say more about that loss. All right, so we'll uh, move on and uh, talk about uh, the big news yesterday that came out. 2020 three-star running back Elijah Burris becomes the first commitment in the 2020 class for the Tar Heels the 5'10", 205-pound running back who hails from Mount Island Charter High School in Mount Holly, North Carolina. Currently this season leads the state of North Carolina and is fourth in uh, the national rankings with 2,481 yards, averaging 14.5 yards per carry, and has 31 rushing touchdowns to this point in the season. Keep in mind, he does still have one game remaining uh, in the regular season and he will also have uh, however long they last in the playoffs still has a senior year as well so he is going to climb the North Carolina record books pretty quickly Um, he has four five to four six type speed um, and at 5'10", two, uh, 205, that's pretty good, um, especially for a guy that's kind of built like a bowling ball, uh, a little bit of a bigger back when you look at him on film than some of the backs that you're going to see uh, recently at Carolina, but still has fantastic speed. And the thing is, is although he is big, the best thing that he does is he is a guy that can make a lot of people miss In open space, he has uh, a great ability. uh, Keeps his feet moving at all times. That's one of the first things that I noticed about him. He has very sharp cuts, which allow him to make guys miss with ease, and also find those lanes quickly. Instead of having to, you know, make an overly dramatic move, he's able to immediately cut up field and find that open lane and take it uh, for a big gain. I mean, pretty much his highlight reel is just him ripping off big runs and scoring touchdowns. Um, The one concern that I think a lot of people are going to have about him is that he does play at the one single A uh, level of high school football in the state of North Carolina. And now while that may be concerning to some people, this is what I'll advise people to think of. Antonio Williams, who is currently the starting running back at Carolina, um, he uh, played at North Stanley High School, which is a 1A school. So Um, you know, while it is a bit of a concern that he doesn't play the highest level of competition, um, more than likely, most of the players that are in his conference are not going to go to, uh, any sort of FBS school, let alone, um, really any school, uh, to play high school football or high school, play college football. A lot of these guys will be high school players only. Um, I, I would still say it shouldn't be too much of a concern. The fact that he's dominating, uh, should definitely give people um, some good feelings about that. So, you know, I, I know you saw the commitment. Of course, you know, you're not quite as in touch with some of the recruiting around this area that I am. Um but uh, what what was your initial takeaway from that? is it is it good is it at least a good feeling to have someone committed in that two thousand and twenty class? after, you know, going, I mean, pretty far into that recruiting cycle without getting one recruit uh, to commit. Yeah, it's always good news when
2: you get players to commit to a program that in the last two years has combined to win four games. Um, you don't know if the head coach that you just committed to is going to be there. The position coach that you committed to is going to be there by the time you are you enroll into campus. Um it doesn't hurt to get running backs because we always recruit that. So, you know, it's you know, it's always good to get guys committed to Carolina that are in-state guys. Something we've harped on for the last decade. It seems like we can't keep the in-state talent home, no matter the the, the ranking of stars. You know, you always hate seeing guys leave the 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 Carolinas to go somewhere else and, and play. Big-time college football. So, yeah, I mean, when I saw it, I was happy for the program. Big, you know, it's always 24-7, 20, 365 recruiting. The 2019 class, the 2020 class, the 2021 class. I mean, the 2020, it's, it's, a, it's a non-going thing. So, to start getting guys in that class committed, um, it's always a good sign.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's definitely got to be the takeaway is that it is an in-state guy. Remember, the last couple of years, this state has started to see a bit of a shift towards NC State as to the in-state team that is dominating. And it seems like, you know, this is an area that's a pretty big hotbed for recruiting now, especially in the Charlotte area. And it seems like a lot of these outside teams have been able to walk in and take away a lot of these local products. So to see that Larry Fedora can land a guy like this that is a three-star talent um, is, is right now proceeding to tear it up in the state of North Carolina. And, you know, there is uncertainty about his job. Clearly, he is still doing something right. Now, one of the questions that I want to ask you really quickly about this also before we move on and, and, and have our debate topic for uh, today. You know, when you look at it, I, I think its there's got to be a little bit of hope now for the 2019 class because you see a guy committing in the 2020 class that still has a year left of high school. So clearly, Larry's still selling guys on the fact that he is going to be there does that at least provide a little bit of hope that maybe down the stretch here in this 2019 class, he can maybe make it respectable and close out with a solid class, maybe somewhere in the mid-40s? Yeah, there's
2: always hope because you never know what an 18-year-old kid's going to do. And and this, this group's done a pretty good job in terms of as signing day gets closer, either flipping commits or just getting guys to, to make their decision and come to Chapel Hill. Um, I don't think it would hurt to see – to get a few wins, whether you beat a state, you beat a Duke. You never know what that will do to a, a kid's decision on where to go play football and, and to get an education. So, But, yeah, I mean, we've, we've all been worried about the recruiting class because it hasn't been great. But it wouldn't surprise me at all to see the, 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 the staff turning around as signing day approaches, which is already, what, four months away? And you also have the early signing period, too. So
1: um, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see the, 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 the class get back to, to form. Well, yeah, I think the key thing is going to be that January, February period. That, that month, or, or that roughly... It's a little bit under two months from early signing period uh, starting, which remember is a three-day period. It's not like the national signing day um, in February where it's just the one day. The early signing period is a three-day period, so there will be most. From what I remember last year, most guys waited. I think until the third day, or maybe they did it on the first. It was one of the two. Um, But they most of them are going to sign that letter of intent. On the same day. Uh, but at this point, it's looking as of right now that there will be 13 guys that will be signing that letter of intent. And that's if everybody that is currently committed to the class signs the letter of intent. Remember, last year, DeAndre Hollins did not sign the letter of intent then. That was because he was wanting to sign on National Signing Day at his high school. It ended up Working out, but you know, people will always say, Well, that means that they could be looking elsewhere. Um, this year I would be a little more concerned about that if the guys are still a little hesitant to sign in uh, at the early signing period. Um, but right now that's that's looking where it's going to be at probably 13, maybe 12. Uh, if, if they want to go smaller, um, but at this point it doesn't feel like they're going to add anybody else before. Uh, December because you missed out on Tony Davis, the four-star cornerback who recommitted to Duke. Um, as much as I think everybody wants it, I just I don't see them flipping Sam Howell. I would be unbelievably shocked if that happened right now. And a lot of the other guys, one of the guys that they just offered um, Octavius Brothers, who is an outside linebacker, three-star outside linebacker from Rockledge, Florida. Played at the same high school that um, current true freshman Antone Green played at uh, last year. He has announced that he will wait until February to make his decision. And I feel like there, are most of the guys that the Heels are targeting at this point are probably heading in that direction. I know um, Tamari Fox, the brother of Timon Fox, is one of those guys that a lot of people have been keeping an eye on his, his recruiting is kind of all over the place. Um, you know, I think, I think, you know, he likes Carolina because of course the connection with his brother. Um, I think he's also been somewhat impressed by what he's seen from the campus really likes Deke Adams. Um, but he also does have a connection with Iowa um, also has been to Georgia tech that is close to home. So it's going to be interesting. I believe he's going to be on campus this weekend. So this could be a huge weekend Um, For him, as well as um, there is another recruit that is slipping my mind right now that is considering both um, at the moment, but I'm not 100% sure about who that is. I'm trying to remember, Um, but I know he will be on campus as well, so that will be another back and forth. Nate Jefferson um, is a three-star wide receiver uh, down in Tampa, Florida. He could be committing as well pretty soon as two. Um, I know Carolina is in the mix along with Iowa state and then a couple of um, mid major programs. So potentially a chance there, but at this point it seems like 13 will be that magic number when they go into that early signing period. So the staff will have that short about month and a half period to try to get this class turned in the right direction. So with that, we will move on to uh, our debate portion this week. And you know, this week, little bit more difficult, I think, than the last couple of weeks. I think we've gotten a couple of pretty good debates off the table. Um, but one of the interesting things that came up this past weekend, Michael Carter scores his first rushing touchdown of the season against Virginia uh, this past weekend. Neither running back between him and Antonio Williams looked all that great at all on Saturday. But it kind of brought this question to my mind after a little bit of back and forth with a couple of fans You know, Antonio Williams, so far this season, leads the team in rushing. Michael Carter, though, averages more yards per carry and, of course, was out with the wrist injury early in the season. When you look at both of these guys, I think they both bring some different things to the table, but, you know, both have had their moments where they've been effective and they've had other moments where they have struggled to produce. Consistency, I think, is the key for these guys going forward. But if you look at it right now, it seems like one of these guys will eventually have to get the bulk of the carries. You can't keep just bouncing back and forth between these guys. I, my question, I guess, for you, um, and I—I I, I don't. This is going to be interesting because unlike these other debates, I really have no clue where you stand on this one. Uh, which one of these guys would you right now want to see? carry the bulk of the load if, if you had to pick one guy? Who who do you think should see more carries, I guess you should say, down the stretch of the season?
2: I would lean more Carter, um, a little bit fresher. I think he runs harder, he's faster. I think he poses more of a threat to when he touches it, he can get six. Um, I don't feel the same way about Antonio Williams. And we've never really seen Carter get the bulk of the carries and going in, at, you know, at, now in his second year at Carolina. He's always with carries, whether it was Brown, or now it's Brown and Antonio Williams. Um, this back rotation thing has been something we've done really since Giovanni Bernard. I mean, even in the year Hood, ran for almost, what, 600 yards. We still rotated Chris Francis in, TJ Logan in. And it's been frustrating for fans because it's like, how are you taking a guy off the field when he's gashing defenses? Um, But I I would want to see more of Carter early and often. And you use Antonio Williams for your short downs situations and later in the games when you're trying if, if you're in a position to wear down a defense he's a little bit bigger bigger, tougher guy to, to, to tackle in those kind of situations cool. um, so yeah I, I think you look at Carter since he's come back when when the offensive line is blocked he finds the holes and runs through the holes he's got great vision great speed very elusive and you can use him in the pass game as well
1: Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I, I personally am with you. Um, I wanted to quickly touch on what you said about how they've been splitting the carries really for a while. While I do agree with that, I, I, I feel like during the geo era and even really during the hood era, I think, especially in that 2015 season, 2016 was, I think a little bit of a different story. Um, but I justifiably so, and I'll explain that in a second. But I feel like there was a guy that carried the bulk of the load. There there was, you know, Gio was the guy. Yeah, they would rotate someone in. But I don't think it's quite like this where, you know, you have a big run and then it seems like that there's a big run and then Antonio Williams or Michael Carter, whoever it is, is off the field and the next back is rotated in. There's really not... There hasn't been many situations where these guys are really able to sort of establish a good game. It's more if you, and, and you've you got to pick up your yards on these big runs or else you're not going to have a really big night because neither one of them is really handling the bulk of the carries. Or if someone handles the bulk of the carries for one game, the next game it's the other guy that is going to handle most of the load, which... Does not make much sense? Would you not continue with the hot hand? I mean, that's kind of how I feel. And let's be real honest, that's probably we, – we shouldn't be surprised because this is Larry Fedora, and his decision-making is about as head-scratching as anybody's out there. Um, but, you know, with, with, with the Hood situation, I understood it because I thought, you know, that 2016 season, is junior year – I didn't feel like he ran as hard as he was capable of. I thought that he, he, you know, kind of let off the gas a little bit. I didn't feel like he was quite as, he, he was running on the same level that TJ Logan was. I thought Logan simply was running harder. He was playing better. And that's the reason that he got the bulk of the carries. When it comes to these two guys, I mean, it is pretty close. I will definitely give people that. A lot of the concern with Carter has to revolve around the fumbles. That's that's what most people have been talking about. And trust me, I mean, he had the big fumble against Virginia Tech. But then again, you know, we talked about it on the podcast. That was really just a great defensive play. I think there's a lot of running backs that probably would have fumbled that ball. Um, but with the way he was holding it, I mean, can he, can he hold it a little bit better probably, but when I saw the play, you know, on, on replay, to me, it looked like he was holding the ball with both hands and the ball was just dislodged. So I don't really know if he could have held it that much better. Um, And then again, Syracuse, he has a fumble, but you know, the thing that I, I, I had to remind people of is look, Antonio Williams had a key fumble in that Virginia tech game as well. If he doesn't fumble on that first drive of the game, there's a chance Virginia Tech, that offense, doesn't score that first touchdown and and doesn't get going until late in the game. Um, so, you know, look, I, I think both of them have their issues. I think, you know, a lot of people wanted to tell me that Antonio Williams is the more decisive back out of the two. I have to disagree. I think there's times where I've watched it where Antonio Williams – kind of dances around a little bit and is looking for the hole when, meanwhile, especially with how this offensive line is played at times, if the hole is initially there, you've just got to take it and kind of go with it. Um, I think Michael Carter, to me, has the better upside as well. I feel he that he brings more to the table. He's a more dynamic back. Um, you know, Antonio Williams, especially for his size, his speed is pretty good. But Michael Carter, to me, Reminds me of Gio Bernard, um, and that was the comparison that we heard w- when it came to him. You know, day in and day out before last season, and uh, to me, that's a better that that that's a lot better of an upside than what I feel Antonio Williams has, and because I feel Antonio Williams is Elijah Hood. Um, you take your choice out of the two backs. Do you want uh, Elijah Hood or Gio Bernard? To me, I, I would rather have Gio um, from what we saw. And to me, if that's what Michael Carter is, um, I think he needs to see more carries. I feel like he's the guy that brings a a a, ch- a chance to have a more successful rushing offense if he's leading you. Now, that's not to say, look, oh, if, if that happens, then there's no way that you can use Antonio Williams. No. I mean, we talked about... Um, this a little bit and I also talked about this with uh, Zach Hubbard who was the co-host for a while and you know we we both agreed that we would love to see two running back backfields and I just don't understand why that hasn't been a thing uh, with the amount of talent that you have back there and I, I I still truly believe this I think that there are three guys in that backfield that are NFL caliber running backs, because I do believe that if Jordan Brown got in the right situation with his receiving ability, he would be able to make a role for himself somewhere. Um, So, I mean, is that something that you would be intrigued by to see both, you know, maybe both Williams and Carter back there or a combination of Carter and Brown back there or Williams and Brown?
2: Yeah, it's always a possibility. Um, I think it'd be interesting to watch, fun to watch. Um, I just think right now that's just not something they want to do, um, whether it's because Nathan Ellis is a quarterback and it just doesn't fit with his talents. Um, they the offensive line not blocking enough, maybe done Warren having two running backs in the backfield, because he might need a tight end on there for, for, for runner pass block. Uh, but I know I've always been a guy, especially when we had Keys who a, had the threat to run, to to put two other guys back there to make the defense account for three runners on top of your pass, re, uh, of your receiver. So now your RPOs could be even more harder to defend. Um, I just don't think right now we were built to do that, unfortunately. Hopefully, maybe in the future, we can get to a point where we can do that more often, be able Integral part of our
1: offense. Well, you say that, you know, that because of Nathan Elliott, you think that might be one of the reasons that they're a little bit hesitant. My thing is, though, is why are they really all that hesitant to run with Nathan Elliott? I mean, we've seen him run the football before. That was a big part of his game last year when he came in and took over the starting role down the stretch of the season. I, I mean. Are are you in that camp that really thinks that he doesn't have that much running ability? Because I, I think it's I think it's there, they just haven't used it.
2: I mean, I thought after last year ended, and we were going into this year with him and Chaz as a, the, the the battle, you know, I, I just thought I think Elliot's a guy that I and I I mean, he's not Dak Prescott, but, like,
1: when Dak Prescott runs for the Dallas Cowboys and they use his legs, it kind of gets him going as a passer. Right. No, yeah, no, you're right. I understand that. Yep. I
2: think, I think if you get some designed rush for Nathan Elliott, maybe it'll settle his nerves down and he'll just, as a passer, it'll, it'll just it'll ease him a little bit because, I, 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 it's hard to explain because some people think it's stupid, but like, I mean, Dak Prescott two weeks ago got, got his, his ass lit up on a hit, and after he got hit, he played a heck of a lot better for some quarterbacks they like getting hit and it gets them fired up. So maybe for Nathaniel, you use him in the run game. You let him maybe get hit. Let him talk some jump. Let him just play with some swagger because he's shown the ability to make plays with his legs in design run situations other than – we're going to run a quarterback draw. Like, no, put him in some option and stuff out there. Let him run, get to the edge. So, yeah, no, I, I'm with you. Let him run more.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, and, and that's that's the thing. I mean, you, you said, you know, when he gets hit, maybe he gets fired up. If people remember back to last year's game against Miami – he took a pretty big hit in that game. And I remember it was after getting a first down. He got up and was pretty much shaking his head like, Yeah, I'm ready to go now. Let's let's do it. Um, he, he was he was ready to go. That fired him up. And I, I just I don't understand where that part of the game has gone. Um, you know, you, you've got trust me, I understand that a lot of these games you've been trailing and you need him to stand back there and throw, but look, you weren't trailing in the game against Virginia Tech for, for most of the way. You weren't trailing for most of the way against Syracuse in the second half. Yet, somehow, that was still not a part of your game by any stretch of the imagination. Why? Why not? Uh, I mean, you got a guy that's effective. And, I mean, I just I don't understand it. I mean, you know, the, the one game this year that we did win... He didn't run the ball that well at all against Pittsburgh. Um, but there were a couple other times, I mean, we saw it against Cal where he was able to run the football and that was part of what got the offense going. Um, I think you you've, you've got to give him a chance to to be what he can be. and that and it's like you mentioned, you know you didn't really you know, you don't really understand how it gets them going. One of the main things that I think people have to look at is look, if you've got a running quarterback, You're going to see what we saw happen with our defense against Virginia. You saw as the game crept on, Miles Dorn and J.K. Britt started creeping closer and closer to the line because they knew that, look, we've got to be able to take away the run game of Bryce Perkins because he ended up leading Virginia in rushing. So they knew in order to take him away, you're going to have to play closer to the line of scrimmage as as a secondary. And I think that's what would end up happening. That would open up the passing game, open up especially the deep passing game, which is something that we've been waiting to happen a little bit more if, if he became a more consistent run threat. I mean, we saw it first two games of the year. Since that point, I, I, I would have to add it up, but I'm willing to bet that since those first two games of the year, Elliott has run for maybe 50 yards. Maybe, and that's if that's if he's lucky. He may he may actually be lucky to be in positive yardage, um, because of the sacks that he's taken. So, uh, to to me, it makes no sense. But you, that that I think could be what could make it effective. And then if you bring his running ability back into that backfield, then you could go with a couple of those two back sets like we talked about. And look, I'm not opposed to going with two back set with two wide receivers split and the tight end as the H back in that position to block and and just saying, look, we're going to run it down your throat. If, If you really think that Antonio Williams or Michael Carter can get the job done, and that's your most effective offense at this point, feel free because our offense is not blowing anybody out of the water. So, and especially in the red zone, I wouldn't be opposed to it. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, I think that's, that's, that's uh, going to do it on that debate. So we'll move on now. We'll focus on the Georgia Tech game here. And uh, we'll start with, of course, our keys to the game. Um, I think, you know, when, when I look at it, first of all, converting on third down is going to be huge. That starts, of course, with putting yourself in manageable situations. And then when you get in those manageable situations, you need the right play calling to get the job done. Because, look. As much as we're going to want to say that maybe Georgia Tech isn't the same Georgia Tech that it was early in the Paul Johnson era, this team can still score. They proved that last week against Virginia Tech. Team scored 49 points throwing one pass. Um, they, their offense is still pretty damn effective. Uh, so, look, we're going to have to score points. How are you going to score points? Look, you're going to be faced with third down conversions unless by some miracle— Your offense either plays that good or you score a special teams touchdown and two defensive touchdowns, which I don't see that happening. So um, converting on third down is going to be huge. Uh, I think one of the other things, of course, always key against uh, Georgia Tech, know your assignments, especially as a defensive guy. You have got to know where you've got to be at a certain time. Against Georgia Tech, assignment football is what matters. Don't try to be the hero and get out of position and make a tackle. No, that is someone's job, and it's their job. I mean, at this point, this is one of those few games where it's individualistic. You've got to take care of your job. And the main thing is, it's got to be seen from guys like Cole Holcomb, Jonathan Smith, who we've seen have his struggles – and Dominic Ross because he's going to be back in there. Dominic Ross is going to see a lot of playing time in this game because the Heels, as much as they like to go nickel and dime this season, against Georgia Tech, there's no reason to go nickel and dime. I mean, maybe because at this point it seems like Trey Morrison might be the best tackler on your entire team, so it who knows? Might not be the worst decision, but... Um, You know, those linebackers especially, they have to be able to stick to their assignments and make tackles out in space because then that will lead to what will be the third key to the game, which is get them in throwing situations. You've got to be effective on first and second down at slowing down their run. If you allow, let's say you allow a one yard gain and even a three yard gain, that's third and six. They may still go with the triple option but at that point on 3rd and 6, if you're if that starts to become consistent throughout the day that you're able to slow them down and get off the field on those 3rd and 6 situations if they are running the ball, those type of situations will then have to turn into passing situations and that's what you want to get them into because that's like I said, they threw the ball one time against Virginia Tech. Tobias Oliver has thrown 10 passes the entire season, and the guy that he took over for, Taquan Marshall, is honestly probably one of the worst passers of the football that I've ever seen at the college level. He is absolutely awful. Um, I mean, his completion percentage last year was in the 30s. Uh, buddy, I'm pretty sure Mark from Gastonia could complete more passes. Uh, would you agree? Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah I mean it's uh it's pretty bad but uh, so what what are you keys to the game man? Um,
2: you know I think it's the same thing every week I, you know stop to the run's not gonna happen because that's what Georgia Tech's gonna do so you're gonna give up rush yards I, I think we've got to, to maximize. The limited amount of possessions we'll get, you know, normally it's about nine to ten possessions in a football
1: game. Right. Against Georgia Tech, it's going to be about six or seven, unless we give up like 68 like we did Larry's first year. Which means we're not um, winning the game if that happens. You know,
2: so that, that's what I think it is. Can we maximize when we have the ball getting points and defensively just make, putting them in more obvious passing downs. Uh, you know, I think it's going to be tough. I think the Georgia Tech team is a typical Paul Johnson team when you think he's on the outs, they're finally moving on, this team all of a sudden finds themselves playing or in the thick of a race to make it the Charlotte Basics championship game because the coach was that bad. So I think they'll be motivated. Um And for some reason, UNC picked this as their homecoming game, and that always seems to fire teams up because it's kind of disrespectful. So it's really going to be a tough tough game for Carolina to win on Saturday, I think.
1: Okay, well, that's going to make the next part of this awkward as we get to our predictions presented by Hustle Hands. Hustle Hands, uh, the – uh, you can get all your uh, your merchandise online at hustlehands.com. I am butchering this live read, by the way, so that's uh, that's fantastic. But yeah, get all your apparel online, hustlehands.com. Uh, Check in the Hustle Hands TV Worldwide podcast goes live every Wednesday night, 7:30. Facebook Live, just search hustlehand Hustle Hands TV Worldwide, and you will be able to watch the podcast each week, hosted by Jameson Sharp and. Myself, I hang out every week with those guys. We talk to some of the more interesting people around the Charlotte area and find out what their hustle is. Guys, Hustle Hands, it's not a brand. It's a way of life. So we get to the predictions, and uh, well, bud, um, you do the outright predictions, and uh, judging by what you just said, I I, I don't think this is going to be heading in a positive direction for us.
2: No, I think Georgia Tech wins decisively. Um, I'm thinking 38-14. I think you're going to see a team motivated to win. Um, I guess the Carolina team is, you know, how much are they interested? Do they care? What's the motivation to go out and play? Um, We have a track record for not having tons of success against Georgia Tech. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's going to get ugly at Chapel Hill, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, I, I think Georgia Tech wins and, and keeps their hopes alive for
1: playing in the ACC championship game. Yeah, which which are realistic at this point. Uh, it a- Actually, I mean, at this point, we're pretty much the only team that is out of the race in the ACC Coastal. Uh, you know, I, I look at the line at, at six um, in favor of Georgia Tech. It's pretty rare that I do this. I did it against Virginia Tech, and I ended up being wrong. But I would probably lean Georgia Tech uh, in in this situation. I think they'll cover. Um, I, I got a feeling like you do. I don't know if it'll be quite as out of hand as maybe some are thinking. I don't think it'll even be as bad as last year because I feel that this offense has done at least enough to be able to score some points, unlike last year when they scored uh what ten against them? I think it was the what was it? 33-10. I'm getting my blowouts mixed up from last year. Um Cause you had that stretch where Notre Dame that, that got that got horrible. Yeah, they scored 10. It was 33-10. That's right. Seven was against uh set they scored seven points against Virginia Tech. So uh, I think it'll be a, a lot more competitive than it was last year. Um, you know, I, I think it seems like one of the one of the only areas where Larry has done a really good job, um, you know, outside of Pittsburgh, uh, he seems to have their number. He also seems to have the number of the Georgia Tech offense. That's been one of the things outside of that 68 point performance, like you were talking about, where you know he's he's really kind of been able to get a grasp on that. Uh, even last year, to a to a certain extent. Um, you know they were able to slow down that offense until late in the game, and that was frankly because they were out there forever. Because that's what Georgia Tech does to you—they take the ball and will just wear you down uh, with how much time they'll hold the football. So, you know that's the, I think they're going to do the same thing once again. I feel like that team right now is playing, you know, about where people expected they would this season, and many people expected them to be about a seven and five football team. Right now, this Toriel football team is not beating a team that is playing at a seven and five level. They are not beating a team that's playing even at a four win level. I don't think. Um, you know, this this team really is waiting for that. It to me, it seems like they're waiting for that Western Carolina game if they're going to get another win uh, on the schedule. So. I would lean Georgia Tech in this one unfortunately. Hopefully this is like the Virginia Tech game where I am dead wrong and they end up showing up and who knows, maybe get their second win of the season because you know it's like you said, it's we're, we're kind of in a weird area where you know if if you're on the I want to move on from Larry Fedora train, which there are a lot of people that are on that train. Um you know, you're you're kind of looking at it like we need to lose every game down the stretch. At the same time, you've got to also look at it as well, if we do that, then there's a real chance that recruiting is going to take a massive hit. And we're not, you know, it, it's not a certainty that, you know, we're going to be hiring a guy that quickly right off the bat that can come in and have that much of an impact early on. That would be nice. But especially if you're going to go with a mid major coach like a Scott Satterfield, like a Seth Luttrell um there of course there'll be other names that you know they'll get what we'll get into if that ends up ultimately being the fate of larry fedora um you know it's going to take them a little bit of time to establish themselves in the acc recruiting area so you know that's that's the one thing you got to kind of be a little hesitant of you know i know i understand that look you know in order to get larry out the quickest way to do that is to continue losing but at the same time you don't want the program to get to a point where nobody wants to play for the program at all even with a new coach so before we get out of here for this episode of the heel tough blog podcast we have to talk to jones angel the play-by-play voice of the north carolina tar heels to learn just a little bit about this football team from his perspective from the booth all right, guys. So we are sitting down here with the voice of the North Carolina Tar Heels. You guys know him, of course. It's Jones Angel, guys. I can't believe I was finally able to get this guy on the podcast. Uh, you know, it, uh, it's it been a while. I had to work up a little bit of courage, but uh, Jones, thanks for joining us, man.
0: Oh well, gosh, I'm excited to be here and uh, looking forward to talking with you and uh, talking some Tar Heels and excited about basketball season getting going. And Gosh, wish we had some happier football news to talk about. To this point, obviously, it's been a tough year for the heels. But um, always love talking Tar Heels and appreciate the time.
1: Yeah, man. So, uh, I mean, you said it. It's it's been a tough year. They currently sit at one and six. But, you know, I I know you have guys on the show each week that you do with Coach Fedora at Top of the Hill, Larry Fedora Live. And just kind of tell us, you know, what's the mindset around this team? Is this a team that still feels like, you know, they're playing for Coach Fedora? There's still something to play for with this team? Or is it kind of maybe starting to turn in that direction that maybe we didn't want it to turn?
0: Well, I think you got to give a lot of credit uh, to the guys on this team for continuing to, to go out there and working hard and trying to uh, give the best effort that they can give. I mean, clearly it's been a difficult season to this point. Um, nobody wants to be one in six through seven games, um, but you know, you, you mentioned having guys on. We had Carl Tucker was one of the players on earlier this week, and I asked Carl uh, kind of a similar question. Just you know, how do you how do you keep that motivation going? How do you keep working hard? Um, How do you get this thing turned around? And he said, you know, you play for each other, and and, and you keep playing for the guy next to you, and you you don't want to let him down, and uh, you don't want to let yourself down. You want to keep working hard. And so, yeah, I don't think effort has ever been the issue for the Tar Heels. I I don't think that has been the problem or uh, trying to go out there and do their best. That hasn't been it. It's been much more on the execution side of things uh, where I think the problems have come. And with some other things, of course, mixed in when you're dealing with Injuries and suspensions and um, just all the stuff that the Tar Heels have dealt with over the last uh, almost two full seasons now. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it's hard to to continue to work hard and continue to keep your eyes forward and and doing that, but I think Carolina has done a good job with that to this point.
1: You mentioned execution, and one of the stats I think that speaks uh, volumes when it comes to execution has to be the third down conversion rate, currently at 31.3%, which ranks 125th in the country what do you believe is the biggest reason that the Tar Heels are struggling on third downs?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a big stat, and it's a good point you bring up. I mean, that, that's extraordinarily low. Um, yeah, I think the biggest issue, at least uh, in the last game for the Tar Heels, was the, the inability to run the football in that particular game against Virginia. So I think they were getting in, you know in, a lot of second and 11s or second and eights and things like that, and, and then those lead you to third and seven or uh, third and ten, and, and those are hard to convert. Um, so I think that that was the issue in that particular game. But in total this year, Carolina's actually been pretty good running the football. So I don't think that's necessarily been the issue. I think it's hard to pin it down on one thing. I think, number one, you you don't want to get in those third and long situations because when you do, those are hard to convert. Um, That's hard for anybody to convert. But particularly with the Tar Heels right now, and they're, they're not real good at pushing the ball down the field. It's not their strength this season. And so I do think that that has handcuffed them a little bit on those third and long situations. But gosh, Anthony, I mean, you you could go and pick out particular plays throughout the year and some of those are third and short, some of those are third and medium, and Carolina just has not executed at a high enough level um, to to convert those at a rate that they want to. And um, I wish I could tell you that it was one specific thing that I think has caused Carolina to struggle in that area, but I just don't know if it's there. I mean, I, I think sometimes it's one thing, sometimes it's another, sometimes like a great example is the Syracuse game uh, where the Tar Heels, you know, they convert that key third down late in the game and, and they're going to win it. All they have to do at that point is is take a knee, but they just didn't execute the play. And so um, I think this would be a much easier problem to fix if it was one specific thing. But I think the challenge has been that it's it's been different things as Carolina has moved across the season.
1: Yeah, no, I tend to agree with you there. Uh, when you look at Nathan Elliott, I think he's a guy that, to this point, is definitely receiving a lot of criticism. And early in the season, I think there was a little bit of an understanding amongst a lot of Tar Heel fans as to why. But now it seems like the fan base is a little bit split because since returning in that game against Virginia Tech, he really has played well. At this point, um, you know, is it kind of fair to say that he shouldn't be getting a lot of the blame he's been playing well enough to put this team in position to win games?
0: Yeah, I think Nathan Elliott really struggled in the first two games of the season. Uh, The California game, you know, with the four interceptions, uh, clearly that is not the kind of production that you want from your quarterback. It's just not going to give you a chance to win the game. Um, And then in the East Carolina game, while Nathan did not throw any interceptions, he was pretty inaccurate in that game. I think uh, the Carolina coaches missed or or tallied 11 missed throws that they thought should have been completed that, that were routine kind of throws and that were there that Carolina just missed in that particular game. And so, you know, those two games were not very good. Um, but since then, it, as you referenced, you know, I do think that Nathan has really settled down. Um, you know I've talked to him and he said he just wasn't, he, he wasn't playing within himself those first couple of games. He was out there trying to do too much. He was really pressing the issue, trying to make plays, um, rather than just kind of being the best version of himself that he can be. And look, I mean, Nathan Elliott is a solid quarterback. He does not have the strongest arm in division one football. He does not have the fastest legs in division one football, but he can manage your team. He can get you up and down the field. And I think he has done a much better job of that um, since that time. And what he has done pretty well is protect the football. I mean, he's thrown 212 consecutive passes at this point without an interception, that's a single season record for Carolina. So, He's doing his job, what he's being asked to do. Now, you know, can Carolina do as much offensively as they want to? Um, has he made every single play or every single read perfectly um, since that East Carolina game? No. But to look at Carolina's offense and go, this one player is why the Tar Heels aren't having success, I, I think that would be a big mistake.
1: One of the other things that I'll ask you uh, that's kind of a negative and then we'll move on to some of the positives. You know, this team so far, they've lost three games by one possession. You can take that as maybe a positive, I guess, but is the struggles to close out games, is it because this team is still so young?
0: That's a terrific question, Anthony. I, I do think that's been one of the more frustrating parts, uh, particularly that Virginia Tech and, and Syracuse games. Those are games Carolina should have won. I mean, the Tar Heels, I thought they dominated that game against Virginia Tech on the field, but never enough on the scoreboard. And then, you know, Virginia Tech made the plays late to win it. And then, you know, the Tar Heels just had so many opportunities uh, against Syracuse late in the game um, to to close that one out that they could not do. And so – um, you know those two in particular. I know the other one one score game is California. And, you know that one's a little different. Carolina made that a one score game late, and then had an onside kick opportunity that didn't go their way. Um, but those two conference games in particular are ones that I think the Tariels feel like they should have had. Um, and I think it's a combination of a couple different things. Um, you know this particular group of guys. You know this isn't Mitch Trubisky and Ryan Switzer and T.J. Logan and um, Bug Howard and. Uh, All those players from uh, five years ago or so that that had that bank of experience of of winning some big games. You know, this group, I think, still needs to learn how to win those type of close games. And, And there's no magic dust that you can sprinkle on them and have them figure it out. They just have to go do it. It has to happen. And then it starts happening more. And I think, yeah, I'll go back to something that you asked earlier. I do think that when you fall into some of the stuff that Carolina has struggled with, when you get into a close game late, one of two things can happen. You either start going, oh gosh, is something bad going to happen? And, and you kind of play against something bad happen happening rather than playing for something good to happen. And then also, and Brian Simmons, who's our analyst on, on the Tar Heel Sports Network and does such a great job and you know, knows a ton more about football than I do. He played in the league for ten years and was an All American at Carolina. You know, he talks a lot about you know, not waiting for someone else to make the play to win the game. That you individually, whoever you are, have to go out there and you you want that responsibility. You be the guy who wants to go make the key tackle or the interception or make the catch that gives you the third down to seal the game or, or whatever it is. You have to want that responsibility, and so I think the Toreros are still um, trying to figure out how to how to make all those things happen late in close games. It is just hard for it to happen until it does, and then I think once it does, it starts to build on itself a little bit.
1: One of the guys I think that's been a playmaker to this point, there's been a few guys out there uh, that I think have really stepped their game up, but the guy to me that really has stood out has been Trey Morrison, who I think is just having a fantastic freshman season. You know, when you look at it, we've seen some great corners here, especially in the last couple of years with guys like M.J. Stewart and Des Lawrence and even going back to a guy like Kendrick Burney. Is this one of the most talented guys that we've seen in a while? I mean, how high do you think that this guy could climb eventually down the line um, in, in Carolina history amongst some of the great corners?
0: Well, Carolina's had some great ones for sure, but what I think Trey has that a lot of those guys also had is confidence. And, you know, I think even if you want to go farther back, you know, Dre Bly, who I think is the best corner Carolina's ever had. You know, Dre just, didn't think that you were going to catch the ball against him, and he thought he was better than you, and he was going to pick the ball off and then go run it the other way, and you have to have that kind of confidence at that position, and, and the moment since the moment that Trey walked on campus, he has had that confidence in himself, and I don't mean that he's cocky or thinks that he doesn't have to work or something like that. That's not it. It's just that he has confidence in his abilities to go out there and make the play. Now, has he made some mistakes this year? Yeah. I mean, he he had the wrong leverage on that long touchdown, for example, at the end of the Syracuse game that allowed the Orange to tie it up uh, late in regulation. But what he then did is say, okay, I understand what happened. Now I'm going to go back out there and make the next play. And you just have to do that at that position. You can't let negative plays build on themselves because every single human being that has ever played cornerback has been beat for a touchdown before it's just how it is and so you have to have the confidence in yourself in your Mm technique in your ability to be able to play at a high level at that particular position and so when you have that confidence mixed in with the physical abilities that that Trey has I think he's a good tackler you've seen that a couple times Um, As this year has gone on where he's made some big open field tackles, Um, I think he has a really nice combination of of something that can make him a a big-time player, an all-conference type of player at that position in in coming season.
1: Yeah, one of the other areas, I think this is more of a a group thing. I think uh, the secondary has played well, but the pass rush to me has been one of the big things with this defense. I think that has helped them kind of take a step forward. My question to you, though, is how big of an impact has this had um, to the overall success of this defense a group that really, to this point, has looked like they've, they've improved upon last season?
0: i tell you, the really, and I agree with you, Anthony, I think the frustrating part about that from Carolina's perspective is that the Heels still really haven't ever had this season the defensive line that they thought they were going to have. I mean, they, they thought their four starters were going to be Carney and Fox on the end and Aaron Crawford and Jason Strobridge at the tackles, and then you're able to bring in guys like Tyler Powell and Jalen Dalton and Jeremiah Clark and Alan Cater, and you have this uh, pretty impressive depth of talented, experienced players. But because of injuries, you know, Aaron Crawford's only played gosh, i guess maybe 10 snaps this season. Um, the suspensions with Carney and Fox, and you know Carolina's still dealing with that. Fox still has to sit out one game somewhere along the line um, in these final four for the Tar Heels. So they just haven't had the full complement of guys that they thought they were going to have. Um, and when you think about the success that they have been able to achieve, with that front four, um, even though they haven't had all the players that they thought they were going to have, I think that makes it even more impressive. Um, now, a couple other things, you know, I, I think a good example of that was Virginia Tech. You know, that was probably Carolina's best defensive effort of the season, and, and the Tar Heels were able to get a lot of pressure with just four people, and, and so they were able to drop seven into coverage and, and really did a nice job in all areas. Um, now, coming up against Georgia Tech uh, this weekend. You know, that's a position that you're starting to see a little bit of attrition. You know, uh, Jalen Dalton is, is been battling injuries all year. Aaron Crawford has barely played, as we mentioned. You know, Tyrone Hopper, a reserve, has been hurt. Um, Alan Cater is, is, looks like he has a long-term injury. So, I mean, it, it is – you're starting to run out of guys. And that's dangerous against Georgia Tech because they, the way that they block, the way that they play offense it is particularly difficult for a defensive line to handle.
1: Yeah, and then uh, the last thing that I'll ask you, and it's been a storyline I think that's kind of starting to develop, and, of course, it could be that – You know, the Tar Heels may end up moving on from Larry Fedora at the end of the season, but that's not my question, and this was something that was brought up here um, actually recently at the radio station that I'm uh, I'm interning at, and it's really, uh, is there a hunger to win football games at Carolina? I mean, you know, for, for passionate fans like us, of course, but overall, do you think that, you know, it would be an attractive job out there because there is a hunger to win football games?
0: You know, I think that's a a pretty uh, big misnomer about Carolina and about Carolina football, that somehow the Tar Heels don't have the desire to be good. Uh, I think that could not be uh, further from the truth. I mean, the amount of money that Carolina puts into the sport, the amount of resources that are provided for football. I mean, you're getting really close to opening up this uh, brand-new, multi-million-dollar indoor practice facility and brand-new practice area right there in the dead center of campus um you know just redid all of the seats in keenan stadium which i think was a big positive uh for uh, fans to try to improve the game day experience for them uh, as they come to watch the Tariels play you know there's hundreds of people that put in time um on a game day to try to make sure that it runs as smoothly as possible in Chapel Hill and that the experience is as positive as possible. Um, you know, and, and let's not forget, you know, Larry Fedora after Carolina went eleven and one in the regular season in two thousand fifteen, um, every single Tar Heel fan out there wanted Carolina to do whatever it could do to, to give him the money to make sure that he stayed, and that's what they did. And so um to, to somehow suggest and I'm not saying you are suggesting this, Anthony, I'm just saying that To somehow suggest that the Tar Heels aren't interested in being good in football, um, I think is a big mistake. I I think that anybody within college athletics understands that, um, that being good in football is good for your entire athletic department, not just monetarily, but I think it sets the tone for your athletic season. I think it sets the tone for the feel of the university for that particular year. Um, and it's just an important, it's an important thing for us to invite uh, 60,000 Tar Heel fans back on Saturdays and give them a great product on the field and, and make them feel good about what's happening in Chapel Hill. And so um, it's incredibly important to what the Tar Heels want to do, not just um, in Keenan Stadium and for that program. It, it's incredibly important for the athletic department and the university as a whole.
1: Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, Jones Angel, the voice of the North Carolina Tar Heels, stopping by to talk with us. Hey, Jones, thank you so much. Uh, Tell the people where they can follow you if somehow they're a Tar Heel fan and don't follow you on Twitter.
0: Okay. Uh, They're welcome to do so. It's at Jones Angel. Angel has two L's at the end, of course. And uh, um, our podcast is uh, the Carolina Insider. I host that a couple times a week with Adam Lucas. Have a good time with that. And uh, that Twitter feed is at Carolina underscore pod. And, uh, you can find, uh, you can subscribe to that podcast in a bunch of different places, all the normal places that you would. So um, we got a busy, uh, busy couple of weeks coming up, Anthony. Basketball, football, both going on. It's the craziest time of year and uh, looking forward to hopefully talking about a lot of Tar Heel victories.
1: Yeah, Jones, that's awesome man. And uh, yeah, it should be fantastic. I think the basketball team's going to be pretty good, so it'll help to, uh, to lighten up what has been a, a little bit of a dark time here uh, this season for the football team. But uh, hey, thanks for stopping by and uh, I'll let you run because I I know you're a busy man, but, uh, you know, thanks for uh, coming on and have a great weekend, okay?
0: Happy to do so. Let's do it again in the future.
1: All right, yes, sir. All right, so Jones Angel, voice of the North Carolina Tar Heels, stopping by to talk with us here on the Heel Tough blog podcast. So as always, I want to thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Heel Tough Blog podcast. Once again, got to thank Jones Angel for stopping by and chatting with us. Of course, got to thank Josh Marlowe for hopping on with us as the co-host for this recap of the Virginia game and the preview of this weekend's Georgia Tech game. As always, guys, you can listen to the broadcast on On the Tar Heel Sports Network, that's 99.3 FM, 1110 AM WBT in Charlotte, 97.9 FM, and 1360 AM WCHL in Chapel Hill, and 106.1 WTKK FM in Raleigh. Uh, For others, please check your local listings. If you want to watch the game on television, Tom Worm and Dave Archer will be on the call for the Raycom Sports Network as well as the ACC Digital Network. So, once again, thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Heel Tough Blog Podcast. Subscribe wherever you can subscribe to podcasts, Spreaker, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, uh, uh, TuneIn app, uh, and wherever else. Uh, The podcast is available. Also, check out the blog on medium.com. Heel Tough blog is what you search. So, once again, want to thank you guys for listening. And as always, go Tar Heels!